Ladies and gentlemen, uh, it's my enormous pleasure to introduce to you uh, distinguished Professor Elizabeth Loftus. Thank you. Thank you for that, that wonderful introduction. Uh, it's a pleasure for me uh, to be here in Sydney and have a chance to talk with you about the work that I and um, my collaborators have been doing over the last uh, 40 years or so. And I, I have to say, it's, 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 I, I especially want the conference attendees to appreciate, um, we, we often worry when we're teaching um, if we have a heterogeneous group in our audience because, you know, how do you speak to, uh, how do you speak to people who have different backgrounds and different levels of knowledge? I, I, I hope you can appreciate that I am here trying to give a talk with the leading people in the world who do work on applied memory and cognition, the leading people in the world, and at the same time, talk to a general public. Uh, it, 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 you know, it made me nervous, and it is, it is something uh, of a challenge. So, uh, let me just start by saying, Many of the conference attendees at SARMAC do study memory, human, uh, primarily human memory. And human memory is a pretty important thing. Human memory is how we remember where we left our keys, or how we remember what somebody's uh, name is, or how we remember that we're supposed to pick up something at the supermarket, or how we remember sad things that have happened to us in the past or the treasures that have happened to us that we want to think about. But human memory, as, as many of us uh, stumble upon, doesn't work perfectly. And in fact, there are some pretty dramatic things uh, that can happen with human memory. So I want you to think for a minute do you think I could make you remember? Could I make you remember that as a child, you once saw a cat stuck in a tree, and the cat was very frightened, and you rescued that cat? Could I make you remember that if it never happened? Could I make you remember that you were attacked by a vicious animal as a child? Could I make you remember that as a teenager, you committed a crime and it was so serious that the police came to investigate. Could I make you remember that just recently you played a game and you cheated in that game and took money when you weren't supposed to take money? Could I make you remember these things if they never happened? I'm going to address that uh, in this talk. But before I do that... <laughs> I thought I would ask you this question. It is a little funny to come to Australia and talk uh, about the U.S. election, but there's actually something kind of relevant. And I, I did find that when I was in London, uh, in a couple of weeks after the U.S. election, every single taxi driver asked me about the U.S. election. And I've kind of had a similar experience while I've been here in Australia. People 
seem to want to talk about the election, so I'm going to just say something about the election, and particularly a little piece of it that's kind of relevant to what I want to tell you uh, this evening. One of the advertisements that Donald Trump put out there when he was campaigning for the presidency against Hillary Clinton was an ad in which he, well, as you may know, he called her a liar uh, all the time. Uh, but in this particular ad, he said, she is such a big fat liar. She lied about Benghazi. She lied about the emails. She lied about landing in Bosnia. And I thought, well, wait a minute. You know, I don't know much about the emails or Benghazi, but I, I do know something about the supposed lie about landing in Bosnia. Because I had followed what happened in 2008, the last time Hillary Clinton was running, uh, in that case, for the Democratic nomination for the U.S. presidency. And during her campaign, she talked about having landed in Bosnia. She said, I landed under sniper fire. There was supposed to be some sort of greeting ceremony at the airport, but instead, we just had to run with our heads down to get to our vehicles, to get to our base. And I, I remember thinking at that time, eight years ago, what, what, what was Hillary thinking? She, she did go to Bosnia, but she didn't go there by herself. She went with other people, and some of those other people were taking photographs and even videos. And so there were photographs that were produced of this landing in Bosnia. You can see that she is, it's a peaceful greeting ceremony. She's being greeted by children. Uh, she was there with her daughter Chelsea in the days when Chelsea had curly hair. And now, admittedly, the trip occurred in 1996, so 12 years earlier. But what's going on with her? A lot of people thought she was lying. And her lie was a big fat lie in four different ways. Because there was no corkscrew landing as she had described, there was no sniper fire, there was no canceled airport reception, and she was not the first lady to go uh, into a war zone. Well, at least Hillary came forward. She came forward with an explanation right away when confronted with this evidence that her memory was full of information that, that wasn't possible. And she said this. She said, I made a mistake. I had a different memory. I made a mistake. That proves I'm human, which for some people is a revelation, she said. <laughs> well, Donald Trump, when he was running for the presidency, he talked, for example, about how he remembered at the time of the bombing of the World Trade Center, he said, I watched in Jersey City, New Jersey, the state right across from New York, where thousands and thousands of people were cheering as that building was coming down. It turns out that never happened. Did he come forward with an explanation? No. And we can only speculate uh, that if we were to try to press him for one, he, he would say that uh, it's all Hillary's fault or that the horrible <laughs> media had covered up the evidence for uh, the truth of what he was remembering. Well, I'm going to leave the election now because usually 
and, and much more, uh, more usually, I'm thinking about memory as it plays a role in legal cases. So, so I think an awful lot and spend a lot of time thinking about the people in our society who have been convicted of crimes that they didn't do, the, the wrongfully convicted. There's just one project in New York that has gathered, and one project of a number, that has gathered evidence on over 300 cases of wrongful conviction. These are people who spent 10, 15, 20, 25 years in prison for crimes that we now know they didn't do because DNA testing has proven that they were actually innocent. And when those individuals have those individual cases have been analyzed and studied, try to figure out what went wrong. It's been discovered that close to three quarters of them are due to faulty human memory. So I like to talk, at least with my students, about these sorts of data and try to motivate people to appreciate that human memory uh, is a pretty important thing to be studying. So, so how do we study human memory? I, I can say that from my point of view and the, and the kind of collaborative work that I have done with graduate students and other colleagues, uh, over the last four decades, we've developed a couple of paradigms. There, there are many others that different scientists have used. But the particular two paradigms that my research group has tended to stick with one is called the misinformation paradigm. So what happens here in the misinformation paradigm, if you are using this as part of a scientific study, is we'll show people some kind of event, maybe a simulated crime, a simulated accident, and we'll try to feed them some post-event information, that's the PEI, some misleading information usually, about what they saw, and then finally we'll come back to them and test them. What do you remember seeing in that accident, crime, or whatever the initial event was? And so, in many studies, we've shown people simulated accidents, uh, and then we'll test people for what they remember. This work follows work in which we showed people um, four decades ago, and you will often see these materials in introductory psychology books. We showed people an accident where a car goes through an intersection with a stop sign. And just by asking a leading question that suggests it was a yield sign instead of a stop sign, we get lots and lots of people to remember they saw a yield sign at the intersection, not a stop sign. We've even done studies where people, because of the work they're doing, they undergo a very aggressive, hostile interrogation that lasts for a half hour. And by exposing these individuals to false information about who conducted the interrogation, we can get people to mis easily misidentify the perpetrator, the lead perpetrator of that interrogation. So they may have seen the guy on the left uh, commit this hostile, aggressive, violent interrogation, 
But we, through misinformation and suggestive questioning, can get people to remember it was the guy on the right, somebody who doesn't even resemble the actual perpetrator. I had an interesting experience a few years ago. I, I, this might be most interesting to um, us, or particularly to the Sarmac delegates, in which I was working with National Geographic um, to who wanted to do a program to demonstrate uh, this phenomenon where you can expose people to misinformation and contaminate what they remember about an event that they actually saw. And so our plan was to stage an event uh, in a park in New York and a bunch of witnesses are brought in to look at this guy who's playing a card game and suddenly off to the side, there's a whole lot of commotion, and you see uh, a woman screaming at a man. Uh, and while this woman is screaming at a man, another guy comes up to the man, reaches into his bag, pulls out one of his uh, objects, hands it off to another guy. And our, our plan was actually to provide false information to the witnesses that the woman who was screaming uh, had a red coat. And, and we know that we, we can actually do that with these materials. You can show people this National Geographic video, which actually you can get uh, online through uh, National Geographic's brain games and, su and suggest to people that the coat was red. And that, that usually is enough to get some people to believe and remember a red coat. But while I'm trying to contaminate memory uh, that the coat is red, Another one of the witnesses said, it wasn't red, it was white. <laughs> and I thought, oh no, my, my demonstration is being, you know, wrecked, and all these film cameras or, or expensive equipment are filming this demonstration that's going to go on TV maybe, and somebody has just screwed up my demonstration. But then the person after that said, yeah, it was white. And so we had a natural, a natural misinformation effect that occurred right before my very eyes and so the demonstration. Um, but usually if you wanted to do something with these materials, you could suggest that the coat was, was red by just asking the leading question. Think about the woman in the red jacket was screaming at the man. What color hair did she have? Uh, you know, that's a very clever question. I don't know if you can appreciate just how clever it is. Um, you think that I'm asking you about the hair color of the woman. That's kind of the focus. But I sort of slipped in the information that her, her jacket or coat was red. You're concentrating over here. It invades you almost like a Trojan horse because you don't even detect that it's coming. Well, we think that misinformation is important to, to be studying because out there in the real world, misinformation is all over the place. We get misinformation when we talk to other witnesses about some event that we've seen, when we uh, are asked suggestive and leading questions by people who are investigating and they wittingly or unwittingly convey information even though they don't realize they may not realize they're doing it. When we see media coverage about some event that we might have experienced 
All of these provide an opportunity for new information to become available to a witness and to cause an alteration, a transformation, a contamination in their memory. So, in the 1990s, we began to see an altogether more extreme kind of memory problem. We began to see case after case after case where the patient goes into therapy. Maybe she's got one problem. Maybe she's got an eating disorder. Maybe she's a little depressed. And she ends up with a therapist who says something like, you know, most of the patients I've seen with those symptoms were sexually abused as a child. I wonder if anything like that happened to you. And even if the patient denies any sexual abuse in her history, the therapist maybe inadvertently presses the sex abuse agenda and a number of these individuals start to recall or remember or think they remember extensive brutalization that they allegedly completely forgot or repressed into their unconscious until this therapy made them aware. Sometimes the recollections, which I'll put in quote, are so extreme that these patients are remembering being raped in satanic rituals where they're forced to endure animal sacrifice, baby breeding, baby sacrifice, the works. So I'm seeing a lot of these things happen in actual court cases, and it's kind of natural to ask, where do these bizarre memories come from? Because in many of these situations, you can even disprove the memory because individuals are remembering things that are geographically, psychologically, or physically impossible. So where do they come from? And it was natural to ask, well, what's going on in this psychotherapy that produced these bizarre recollections? And we started to see things like Imagination, guided imagination exercises where the therapist might say, you don't remember anybody abusing you, why don't you just close your eyes and think about who might have done that to you. Or sexualized dream interpretation. Sexualized dream interpretation, something like this. Now, you know, if you've ever been in therapy or, or done therapy, you may have had the experience of talking about your dreams. There's nothing wrong with doing that. As long as you realize that day residue gets into the dreams at night, so what people are worrying about during the day can find its way into your dreams as dream material. It's okay to ask about a recent dream. Maybe it's a starting point for a conversation. But in many of these cases where uh, some of these issues were arising, particularly in the 90s and 2000s, when the patient would dream about a particular object, the therapist would interpret it in a sexual way. So a patient dreams about a snake and the therapist says that's a penis. The patient dreams about a serpent, the therapist says that's a penis. I actually worked on a case in, uh, a civil case in which somebody was suing somebody else, in which the patient 
dreamt about a cinnamon roll. And the therapist said that was a penis. And I, you know, I thought, I don't get this. I mean, in my experience, uh, no. But this is what cross-examination is good for, so at least the, the therapist could be cross-examined. Now, why was it when the patient told you that she dreamt about the cinnamon roll that you thought that was a penis? The therapist said, well, because of the goo on the cinnamon roll. And I know you'll never think about cinnamon rolls after this. Hypnosis, particularly with highly hypnotizable people, another way to produce false memories and exposing people to false information. Well, what you would see in these cases, I mean, if she's remembering, if she's remembering, um, I was forced into satanic rituals and I had to watch animals be killed and I had to watch people have babies and the babies be killed. I mean, this is not like turning a stop sign into a yield sign or making people think that person A, you know, was person B. Something really big is going on here. There are really rich, richly detailed false memories. They're getting inserted into the minds of these individuals. And this is the kind of thing we wanted to study. A little bit more systematically than just analyzing individual cases where it looked like it was happening. So now I want you to envision that you are you know, a university or college faculty member, you want to do a piece of research, you want to study how it is you can plant a seed and it grows into one of these rich false memories, what are you going to do? What are you going to do and how are you going to do it? You need to know that on our campuses, we have ethics committees, human subjects <laughs> review committees. You have to propose your research to one of these committees it didn't seem very likely that our committee was going to look too kindly on a proposal that we're going to bring in some women and make them think that their fathers raped them in satanic rituals and forced them into animal sacrifice. No, it was not going to fly. So we needed an analog, and that's what a lot of psychological science is and does. We needed something that we could propose that would not offend the human subjects review committees, um, but would get at what we were interested in getting at. So we wanted to plan a memory of something that, if it had happened to the individual as a child, it would have been at least mildly traumatic. And, and there was the initiation of this new methodology where there's no event to begin with, but we're going to ply people with suggestions about the past, and then we're going to test them to see what they remember about either their childhood or maybe their more recent past. And our first effort to do that uh, was to plant a false memory that when you were five or six years old, you were lost in a shopping mall, you were frightened, crying, ultimately rescued by an elderly person, and reunited uh, with the family. And we developed a suggestive interviewing process where we were able to plant this either complete or partial false memory 
In that case, at that time, in the minds of about a quarter of these otherwise <coughs> healthy, ordinary human beings. <coughs> the critics, uh, they, you know, they came out in full force right away. They could see where we were going. And they had a decent criticism. Getting lost is pretty common. Show us you can plant a false memory for something that would be a little bit more upsetting or arousing or bizarre or unusual if it had actually happened. And other investigators, uh, some of whom are in this room, came forward to plant those kinds of false memories. One group in Tennessee planted a false memory that when you were a kid you nearly drowned and had to be rescued by a lifeguard. Uh, another group in Canada planted a false memory that when you were a kid you were attacked by a vicious animal or had a serious indoor or outdoor accident. I had a collaboration with an Italian collaborator and we planted a false memory that you witnessed someone being demonically possessed. Uh, and more recently, a, a study done in Canada planted a false memory that when you were a teenager, you committed a crime that was serious enough that it involved police presence. Succeeding in planting these pretty rich false memories in at least a minority, a significant minority of ordinary, otherwise healthy human beings. Just recently published is a mega-analysis that takes uh, a collection of these studies uh, and I thank you to my academic granddaughter, uh, Kim Wade, for uh, sharing this uh, information and a couple of slides uh, so I can show you the results of this. This group of researchers, many of whom are here, including the president of the organization here, uh, a number of studies involving 423 subjects and what they found when they used a common coding scheme in this paper that was just recently published, that about 30% of them produced a pretty detailed, rich memory, and an additional 23%, uh, a strong belief that this uh, had actually happened to them as a result of these suggestive interventions. So, we, we've used some pretty strong techniques for planning false memories. We've used other techniques that are a little bit milder and weaker, but still can produce false memories like guided imagination, uh, dream interpretation, hypnosis, and exposing people to other people's memories, plying people with false information, or even the, the kind of new high-tech way of doing uh, this, uh, sort of pioneered by the New Zealand group uh, headed by Marianne Gary is to show people uh, doctored photographs which is a pretty interesting way of getting people to develop memories that they did things or saw things that they never did or see. So one of the uh, questions that my group has asked is this, if I plant a false memory in you what are, what are the consequences of doing that? Does it affect your later thoughts, your later intentions, your later uh, behavior? 
And I did a lot of this uh, early work with a then postdoc, Dan Bernstein, and a couple of then graduate students, Carol Laney and Aaron Morris. We planted a false memory, for example, in people that you got sick eating eggs, or you got sick eating pickles, or you got sick eating strawberry ice cream. And guess what? People aren't as interested in, see in eating those particular foods. And just at the barbecue tonight, I ran into uh, another uh, former student, Seema Klippasifi, um, and with, uh, we and others did a study, she was the lead author of this study, planting a false memory that you got sick drinking a vodka drink as a teenager. People aren't as interested in a vodka drink after being exposed to our suggestive manipulation. If we can plan a negative memory that you got sick on the food, maybe we could do the opposite. We could plan a warm, fuzzy memory about a healthy food. And maybe people would want to eat it more. And that's exactly what we did in one study uh, on asparagus. Uh, and uh, Actually, uh, the, the title of that asparagus uh, paper is, is um, one of my, my favorite titles is called Asparagus, a Love Story, because we made people um, uh, want to eat more asparagus after this. So there are a lot of questions that people ask me about these false memories, either the misinformation memories or the rich false memories. And you may be thinking uh, of these questions uh, yourself. Uh, but one common question, is there any way to tell the difference? between a memory that is genuine and authentic versus one that is a, a product of some other process. And this question about true and false memories can be examined in a number of ways. You might think, for example, that maybe people are more emotional about their true memories than their false memories. But in some research done, with a former graduate student, Carol Laney, we planted false memories in the minds of some people, and we found other people who had had that experience, something like as a child you witnessed your parents having a physical fight, and we looked at the emotional reactions, uh, the intensity of the emotional reactions of those who were reporting a true versus a false memory, and they were equivalent. Maybe the brain knows Maybe if you could get in there and do some neuroimaging, you would find some neural signals that were different when people were recounting something that was true versus something that's false. In collaboration with some investigators who know a lot about functional magnetic resonant imaging, we did one of these memory distortion studies and we compared putting people in a scanner, went by the scanner too fast, and let them recount experiences, some of which were true and, and some of which were false as a result of suggestive influences. And the overwhelming impression from this uh, piece of published research is the similarity in the neural signals for true and false memories. Sometimes I get asked, are we all susceptible? Is, is every one of us susceptible to these kinds of manipulations? Well, we had a chance to look at a group of people, an extraordinary group of people, and we thought, 
if anyone would be immune to these influences, it would be this group. These people, they're, they're rare, but they're now have been discovered, at least 50 of them, and uh, colleagues of mine on the other side of the campus have been studying them. They remember just about everything they did every day of their adult life. They've been featured on 60 Minutes a couple of times. They're pretty impressive, and 60 Minutes has done some sophisticated testing of these people. What would happen if you put these people into some of these false memory studies? Thank you. And so, in this collaboration between these two research labor uh, laboratories, we did compare these people with a superior memory to age match controls who have normal memory, and we found that the superior memory people were just as susceptible to having their memories be contaminated as were their age match controls. You don't even have to do anything very sophisticated to get people to have false memories. I'll tell you about a study uh, based on the dissertation research of a recent PhD, Stephen Frenda. He's the one who's just had people make up a story about how they had rescued a cat and was stuck in a tree uh, as a child. They have to make up a story, basically a lie, and try to have it be as convincing as possible because their job is to convince other people that it's true. And uh, you, you see here that there is no journal name uh, mentioned because the study, we, we sometimes call this in the field uh, under revision, but another probably more realistic way to describe this is it's between rejections. But <laughs> we hope uh, that... Uh, you know, it's going to find a good home. But we, uh, again, he uh, was successful in a series of dissertation studies in uh, planting this uh, memory by just getting people to make up this convincing story. Earlier this year, uh, now it's last year, uh, we published a paper uh, called Memory Blindness. Um, and what we're interested in here is we have people tell us what they remember uh, happening, and then we feed them back a, a different version from the one that they had actually reported. But they, we say to them, this is what you told us happened uh, in this event. So we're sort of telling them that they said something different than they actually said. To give you an example, uh, they see a bad guy um, uh, steal somebody's uh, wallet out of her purse. You can see he's wearing a green jacket. When we ask them, do you remember the color of the jacket? And circle that color. Uh, they can, many of them, not all of them, will circle uh, a green that is more or less close to the actual color. And essentially what we do is we later on tell them that essentially you told us that the guy, the thief in the brown jacket, that you said his jacket was brown. We want to ask you something else about. Do you remember what brand the jacket was? And a number of these people will now not even notice the discrepancy that this is not what they said before, and their memory shifts in the direction of this new information. We've done a few studies now that we published uh, 
now last year and a couple years ago on sleep deprivation, which I think uh, is pretty important. We teamed up with a psychologist uh, named Kim Fenn who runs a sleep lab. Uh, and so people get an experience and then they're either allowed to sleep through the night or they're forced to stay up all night. They can watch TV or do homework or work on puzzles, but they can't sleep. And later on, uh, they're tested. And what we found in this research is that sleep deprivation not only leads to increases in susceptibility to contamination, but we can even get people to falsely confess to acts that would be problematic for them to falsely confess with sleep deprivation of this kind, increasing the false confession rate by four times compared to a group that was allowed to sleep. So just think about this, what this means for the situation where law enforcement often interrogating people strenuously, keeping them up uh, uh, throughout the night, into the middle of the night, and conducting some of those interrogations, maybe helping us understand a little bit why there's so many false confessions in the database of the Innocence Project. About a, a quarter of those more than 300 cases of known innocent people got there because of a false confession. We've done work, our work on sleep deprivation. I, I was just going to basically say that, uh, well, I, I gave you the results. So now a moment uh, on an ethical issue. So here we are. We're, we're, we're getting pretty good here with this mind technology. We can plant false memories in the minds of people, even people who have really good autobiographical memories. We can influence their future behavior. We can make them do more of things or less of things. So what are we going to do about this mind technology? And a couple of issues that I've raised in another talk are, should we ever affirmatively use it? Or should we think about banning the use of these techniques? That's not for us to, this is a matter for society to think about. We can only tell you a little bit about what we're capable of doing uh, with ordinary people. So back to that question I asked you in the beginning, do you think I could make you remember? Could I make you remember that as a child you rescued a cat stuck in a tree or that you were attacked by a vicious animal? Could I make you remember that as a teenager you committed a crime serious enough that it brought the police to the scene? Could I make you remember that you played a game recently and you cheated in the game and you took money uh, that you weren't supposed to take? Uh, that last bit of work having been published by Kim Wade, Rob Nash, uh, and some of their collaborators showing you can do all of these things with ordinary human beings, ordinary otherwise healthy human beings. And so I'm going to just leave you, I've been working on these problems for maybe 40 years now, and if I have learned anything from this experience, it's this, that just because somebody tells you something and they describe it with a lot of confidence and they describe it in a lot of detail 
and they are emotional when they tell you about it, it doesn't mean that it really happened. You need independent corroboration to know whether you're dealing with a memory that is a, a genuine memory or whether it's a product of some other process, imagination, suggestion, or some other process. And we can't know for sure uh, without that corroboration what, what we're actually dealing with. I think that this realization maybe has helped me be a little bit more tolerant of the memory mistakes that people around me sometimes make. You don't have to immediately assume that they're deliberately lying, although for one of the people I talked about earlier in this talk, I may uh, assume that is true, but they may just have a, a false memory. And such a realization may, may have made a little bit of a difference for the three quarters of those over 300 people who were wrongfully convicted and the cause of that wrongful conviction was faulty human memory because they certainly learned the hard way that memory, like liberty, is a fragile, fragile thing.